the uh, great story of the Exodus. Uh, just before this was the Passover, so the Israelites have um, been through the Passover evening. They've uh, they've slain the Passover lamb, painted its blood on their doorposts. Uh, Pharaoh has now has pleaded with them to leave, um, and they head out uh, to the east uh, towards the Promised Land, um, and then this strange thing happens you know they could have just gone straight out and off they go uh, but the Lord has other plans um, it's virtually impossible for us to know exactly where they crossed over the Red Sea uh, the geography of that area has changed a lot in the last three and a half thousand years uh, apparently back then the the uh, Mediterranean Sea coast was um, many kilometers further south and the Gulf of Suez there was actually reached further up, so it was probably a much narrower crossing uh, at the top there. Um, but there's this strip of low-lying land between the top of the Gulf of Suez and the Mediterranean Sea, um, and full of lakes and marshy lands, marshy, marshy grounds, and a lot of it's now been drained because the Suez Canal has been cut through that Line. So when they cut that channel, all of the water then kind of drained down into the canal. Um, and so over the centuries, uh, even back at that time, uh, canals had been cut, lakes had been drained, and there was actually quite a network of lakes and waters through that whole area. Uh, there were towers built because that was really the, the eastern boundary of Egypt, uh, all the, uh, the other nations would, would look at Egypt and say, we want that fertile land, and so they would come down to try and take over. And so that was really the, the line of defence for Egypt. So it was hard to get into Egypt that way, but it was also then hard to get out of Egypt because of that, that barrier. Um, the Hebrew words uh, that are translated Red Sea uh, is actually Sea of Reeds. Um, so the, the, the sea that they crossed over was actually a freshwater sea, not, not actually the Suez Gulf or the Red Sea further down. Um, the reason it's rendered here as red is because the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, translated its way, it that way, and then that translation is what was used in the New Testament. So the New Testament talks about the Red Sea crossing because it uses the Greek uh, from the, the Old Testament. And in case you're worried that that's an error in the Bible, it's not. Um, it simply ref- reflects that later on, by New Testament times, this term Red Sea didn't just refer to this bit of water here. It actually referred to this whole strip, this whole boundary that divided the continent of Africa from the continent of Asia or the Middle East this watery barrier that the people of Israel had to cross over to finally come out of Egypt. Now, the easiest route was actually right up the north, up here. I think you can see that's a road that's marked there. So that would have been the normal route that they would have taken along the Mediterranean coast, uh, the way of the land of the Philistines, as it, as it said in the text. And it's, it was a an ancient road that most people would use to enter or to leave Egypt. 
Uh, that's the route that would have been taken by Jacob and his sons when they came into Egypt 430 years earlier. But the Lord's got a plan. His plan is to make one final decisive blow against the Egyptians, uh, designed to show them once again that he is the Lord. And so uh, he'll do that, and in doing that, he'll also show the Israelites again that he is the Lord their God. And this plan involved the Israelites doubling back to create the impression that they're confused. And so Pharaoh says what they're wandering. The, the wilderness has hemmed them in. They're, they're lost. They don't know where they're going. And a confused enemy is a vulnerable enemy. And so that would entice Pharaoh to go out and chase after them. So here the Israelites sit between Pharaoh and his armies and this sea, this uh, sea that they can't cross. They can't go forward. They can't go back. And in their eyes, they can't stay where they are. Whatever they do, they're, they're in trouble. And so we see uh, in their words to Moses, you know, where there, there weren't enough graves in Egypt, you know, you've sent us out here to, to die. Um, what we see there is a cycle that happens again and again and again in their history. Uh, the Lord does a great act of salvation and they trust and worship him. And then when times get tough, they complain. And they uh, assume that he's abandoned them. There's a cycle. God acts in salvation, and they're thankful. But then God does something, an act of judgment, and they complain. Say, what, what are you doing? Now, you may be familiar with another cycle that we see slightly different. Uh, We see it happening in places like the book of Judges, where people slip into complacency and idolatry, and then God sends an act of judgment, and then they cry out to the Lord uh, for salvation. Uh, Reading from Judges 2, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies, and the days all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So these, these are not different or contradictory cycles. If we synchronize those... We actually get the full picture. I don't know about you, but that's, that's my life. I see God's great act of salvation, and I'm thankful, but then over time I slip into complacency, and complacency becomes idolatry as I put my trust in other things apart from the Lord. And then because he's my father and he loves me as his son, he acts in discipline. And at the time, that action of discipline isn't pleasant. And when it happens, my first response is to complain. Like, God, what are you doing? Why is my life not going the way it should? Or I think, I think it should. But then he uses that act of discipline to bring me back to my knees where I realize, actually, I've been trusting in my idols and not in him. And so I cry out to him for mercy 
and he shows me afresh the salvation that he's um, achieved for me in Christ. That's the cycle of the Israelites throughout their history, uh, but it's also uh, the cycle of our lives. And uh, on one hand, it's, that's a picture of the sinful human heart and the way we operate, isn't it? We have to keep being reminded, keep being brought back. But at the same time, it is a picture of the Father's gracious dealing with sinners. You know, this, what happens here in the red zone isn't just an unfortunate thing that happens that the Father's got to fix because we've put our foot in it. That's actually part of his dealing with us. He allows us to slide and to slip and to wander away from him because it's through his action of loving discipline as our Father that he brings us back. And in doing that, he's actually making us more and more like Christ in that. That's the process of sanctification, of maturing in Christ. Um, this application is made to us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 7. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all drank the same spiritual food, and all drank, uh, ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So this, uh, this story that we see of the Israelites uh, as we look at it now through the lens of Christ, uh, we're actually to identify ourselves with those Israelites and see the way that the Lord is dealing with them as his people is, is a pointer to the way that he continues to deal with us today as his people. Now, uh, verses 13 and 14 of Exodus uh, 14 are the key verse um, in all of this. See what what was required of the Israelites as they stand here between Pharaoh and the sea. Told, don't fear, don't act, just stand firm, stand still. See and be silent. So what were they to do? Nothing. The Lord will do it all. You know, you just, you just sit down and shut up and watch. And I'm, I'm going to do it. That's, that's salvation by grace through faith, isn't it? The, the grace is the Lord acting. Faith is us seeing what the Lord is doing uh, and receiving it. Uh, theologians call that monogism. Uh, mono means one, as in monocycle with one wheel. Um, and ergon means work. So monogism is one person 
doing the work. And in salvation, it's one person who does the work. It's, it's God. Um, most people are actually monogists. Uh, they think that there's one person who does the work to save me, and it's me. You know, I will be a good person, and that's what will save me when I stand before God or whatever I think is going to happen when I die. Um, there's probably Christians who are monogists in that sense. They think it's Christianity is just me being a good person to save myself. Well, many Christians subscribe to what is called synergism. Sin means with, along with. So a synergist thinks it's a combination of my work and God's work to save me. Um, you know, maybe God does 99% of it, but I'm still going to do that 1% to finish it off. What's happening here is monogism in the true sense of the word. God is doing it all, and it's because he does it all, he says he's the one who's going to be glorified. He gets the glory for what happens, not the Israelites. Now, monogism doesn't just refer to the moment of salvation, uh, because the Israelites will have to learn. Over the next 40 years, they'll be getting hungry and thirsty, they'll be facing hostile enemies, they'll be tempted by idolatry all the way through their their history they they learn that it wasn't just the lord alone who saved them it's the lord alone who will sustain them and bring them through to the land that the security of his covenant with them doesn't depend on what they do but it depends on what he does now in this um, event sorry maybe i'll just go back to the map so we're not distracted. In this event of salvation, see how the Lord uses a number of different means, ways of accomplishing this salvation. There's this pillar of cloud and fire that moves between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And it's a clear supernatural manifestation of his glory, isn't it? Right. Uh, and more than that, it's actually a reminder of the ninth plague Anyone remember what the ninth plague was? Nine out of ten. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. What happened? The darkness was over the land of Egypt for three whole days, except where the Israelites were. There was light. Um, And that's what's happening here. It's not not crystal clear in the the way the text is translated into English, but what it's actually saying is this, this pillar of cloud and fire and so for the Egyptian armies it's dark on the other side it's light for the Israelites even even at night time now it's interesting to note I think that this pillar of cloud and fire in itself that's not what makes the Egyptians know that he's the Lord Uh, it's not actually the parting of the sea that makes the Egyptians know that He's the Lord. And anyone might think that if anyone today was to come across such a phenomenon, like a pillar, sudden pillar of cloud and fire without any scientific explanation, uh, would instantly say, oh, there must be a God, and they'll fall on their face and um, believe in Jesus and become a Christian. Um, but that's, remember what the Jews demanded of Jesus? They said, show us a sign 
so that we may believe you. Now, Jesus did many signs, so many signs that the gospel writers couldn't even record them all. But in the end, did the Jews believe him? They saw the signs, but they didn't actually believe. Jesus said, actually, there's only going to be one sign that will cause you to believe. That's the sign of Jonah. When I go to the cross and I'm buried in the tomb and then raised again. Uh, It's only actually when you see a sign that's a sign of judgment. The Messiah is killed and becomes a curse. And then the Messiah is raised from the dead to what? To become the judge of all humanity and every single human being who's ever lived will stand before him as their judge. When the Jews heard the good, the, the gospel, the news that the crucified Jesus had been raised from the dead, they were terrified because it meant for them the Messiah that we killed, he's coming back and he's going to judge us. And then the good news was come to him and he'll forgive you and restore you. How do we know that Jesus is Lord? Well, it's not primarily because he multiplied the bread or he healed the sick or he controlled the weather or even because he raised the dead. All those miracles had been done before by prophets in the Old Testament. We believe in Jesus. We know that Jesus is the Lord because in him came judgment. Uh, Jesus said in John 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So, in Exodus, how will the Lord be shown to be the Lord? Not the pillar of fire or the parting of the sea, but when he defeats Pharaoh by drowning his armies. What will make the Israelites believe? What was, when, when does it say that they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses? When they were standing on the other side, safe and sound, and they saw the bodies of the Egyptians wash up on the shore. So don't, don't count on supernatural manifestations or experiences to keep your faith alive. Just look to the ultimate act of judgment where the Lord slew your enemies of sin and death and the devil. Look to the cross. Look to the risen Jesus. That's the only sign that you need to believe that he is the Lord. So there's this, that clearly the miraculous is happening. The pillar of fire and smoke, the parting of the waters. Uh, but parting of the waters, it's not like it's depicted in the movies, is it? Where Moses goes bang with his staff and the, the water just, you know, instantaneously divides. The sea is parted as a strong wind from the east blows all night. Now, this is the same east wind that brought another one of the plagues to Egypt, the locusts. The east wind blew the locusts into Egypt, um, and then uh, at the end of it, the Lord sent a west wind, and it blew the locusts back and dumped them into this sea that they're about to cross. Um, 
some have uh, attempted then to discount the Exodus account by saying, well, it's scientifically possible for a strong wind to blow the waters apart and to turn the sea into dry land. I've, I've seen it happen. I was down at the Kurong a few years ago and there was a strong southerly wind and I could actually see the water line move as the wind was pushing the water back. So uh, people claim that uh, that's really what happened. It was just a happy coincidence. There happened to be a wind and the Israelites and Moses interpreted it as the Lord doing a miracle. Um, but that view that kind of pits science against faith, science against the Bible, um, is actually a wrong understanding of God's relationship to his creation. God is not an interventionist God. He just lets the world tick over according to all its laws and um, and uh, occasionally he sticks his finger in and does a miracle. He is constantly interacting with his creation. He's constantly upholding his creation. Uh, the growth of a blade of grass and a flower is because of his constant interaction with his creation. The death of a sparrow never happens apart from the will of the Father. So nothing actually happens in creation from the smallest molecule, smallest electron spinning around a, a nucleus to the huge natural disaster. It's all the hand of God sustaining and maintaining his creation. So that means that these, this strong east wind that blew from the east was as much the action of God as the pillar of fire and of smoke. So we can be thankful, can't we then, for the times that God acts uh, in the ways that seem to contradict the laws of nature and are unexpected and supernatural, but we can also be thankful for the way that he's constantly working through the, the ordinary or the natural things that take place in life. Uh, he's the one who created the laws of physics. So he's uh, working in all things. They only work, they only function because of his ongoing presence and his power. Think of how that applies to Jesus' suffering and death. If we'd observed all the events that took place uh, from Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane, to Saturday when Jesus is put in the tomb, then we'd see men making decisions, taking actions, much like probably what would have happened in the thousands of crucifixions that took place around that time. And we might just conclude, okay, well, this was just another case of a man stepping out of line and he gets crucified. But behind all of their actions was the hand of God. Uh, Acts 2.33 says it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that they did these things. Uh, As the people are praying in Acts 4, they say that uh, what happened was whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so that there would be no doubt of this process, that behind these natural 
normal decisions of human beings was actually behind that was the, the work of the Father. He Occasionally he did suspend the natural processes and he manifested his power uh, in darkness, uh, in an earthquake and ultimately in the resurrection itself. So what appears to us to be a combination of the natural and the supernatural is all the hand of God working out his purposes. So the Israelites pass through the water. Pharaoh's army follows them. And remember how Pharaoh thought the Israelites were confused as they doubled back? And how that was actually the Lord's plan from the very start? Well, now it's, now it's the Egyptians' turn to be confused. They thought the Israelites were confused, but now actually they're the ones confused. Their, their wheels seize up on their chariots. Uh, and then the waters return and drowns them in this judgment of water. Uh, this, is, this is Israel's baptism. Uh, remember in 1 Corinthians, we heard they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The waters of baptism are a symbol both of judgment, like the great flood waters at the time of Noah, or these waters at the time of the Exodus. And they're also a symbol of freedom because our sins are washed away. We are made clean. We're purified by the work of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a sign that the old has gone, the new has come. Anyone who is in Christ is made a new creation, not by the act of baptism, but by the salvation of the Lord that baptism symbolises. Now, we don't really get baptised in the sense that it's something I do. I don't go and get myself baptised. It's something that's done to us. The church actually baptises us uh, in that that sacrament, in that action. Uh, We're just told, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And then we're carried through the water, symbolically leaving the old behind, crossing from the old to the new. Now what's the necessary response to the great action of God's salvation? What does he require of those who are saved by his hand? It's worship. And that's, that's what follows in this story. They get to the other side of the sea. They, they believe in the Lord and in Moses. They see his judgment on the Egyptians. They know that Egypt is dead to them and they are dead to Egypt. That's all in the past. They're no longer slaves. Their home, that's no longer their home. Their home is where the Lord is about to take them. Their response is worship. And Exodus 15 is this uh, magnificent song, which I'm going to read in a moment. It's not, it wasn't a one-off song. Uh, the verb uh, sang, where it says Moses sang this song to the Lord, uh, it's, it's in the imperfect tense. Uh, what that really is indicating is that uh, this is a song that Israel continued to sing 
throughout their history. Um, the, the Jewish commentators on this uh, passage say scriptures contain many songs, but there's only one song par excellence, and it's this song. And right up to the present day in synagogues, whenever the story of Exodus is read, this song is sung. Uh, and they also sing this song on the seventh day of the Passover festival, the festival of unleavened bread. Um, now, when Moses and the Israelites sang this song, it says in 15 verse 1, uh, it seems like they were actually being led by Miriam and her band of female drummers and dancers. And many Bible scholars actually think that uh, Miriam quite likely was actually the author of this song. Uh, this is the, the place where Miriam is identified as a prophetess, which implies that these words are the words that she spoke and sang from the Lord. Um, and there's a slightly different wording. So in verse 1, Moses says, I will sing to the Lord. But uh, if you see in verse 21... Miriam actually starts it off with a call. She says, sing to the Lord. So Miriam's the one out there saying to Israel, sing to the Lord, worship the Lord. And Moses and the Israelites respond by saying, we will sing, we will worship him. Now, do you remember Miriam? Here's Miriam, Moses' sister. Uh, She was there right at the very beginning of the Exodus story you know the story she was about nine years old when she saw her baby brother Moses being put in a box and hidden in reeds and Moses safely passed through the waters of the Nile because he was then rescued taken out by Pharaoh's daughter Um, and Pharaoh's daughter gave him the name Moses, which means drawn out of the water. This is the first time we hear of Miriam since that incident. And it's like these two instances of Miriam are like a bookend to this chapter of Israel in Egypt. Both marked by being rescued through passing through the waters. So just to finish, I'm just going to um, read this song uh, without comment because um, I think sometimes as maybe as evangelicals we we have a tendency to um, get the text of the Bible and to analyze it and so on and that's we need to do that but when it comes to passages like this this is a song we don't need to analyze it or exegete it as such we just need to hear it and we actually need to Sing it in our hearts. So let me read Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. 
They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and fear fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen.